Thanks for tuning in to this Journey Bible Church sermon podcast. Join us every week for fresh sermons from God's Word by subscribing to this podcast wherever you like to listen most. If you are looking for a church in the Kansas City metro, come check out one of our church's campuses for worship on Sundays. Now, we hope you enjoy the message. Awesome. I'm going to be reading our scripture for today. It's Ephesians chapter 6, verses 21 through 24. So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and with and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. This is God's word. Right. Well, uh, good morning again, everyone. And uh, again, if you're new or if you're joining us online, my name's Colton and I'm Journey's West Campus Pastor. Uh, today we're finishing our sermon series in Ephesians. And um, if you can believe it, we started this series all the way back in October 2021. It's now the end of May, May 2022. So that means for about 26 Sundays, uh, we've been in the letter uh, to the Ephesians, which is just incredible. Uh, so before we unpack the last words in this letter, uh, I want to recall some of the highlights that we've explored along the way. If you're like me, you probably don't remember what I preached or, you know, what, what, what maybe I said even like a couple months ago, let alone last Sunday. So I sometimes even forget as the preacher. But, you know, back at the beginning of the sermon series, we uh, opened up our series grounding ourselves in some of the historical context. Uh, we kind of looked at this big old map of the Roman Empire in the first century, and we learned that the ancient city of Ephesus was this sprawling metropolitan city in the time period. Uh, Rome was, in fact, the major city in the western part of the empire. Ephesus was the major city in the central empire. And then you had Antioch, which was the major city in the eastern part of the empire. You know, for us today in America, in the 21st century, that'd be kind of be like comparing Los Angeles to Chicago and maybe to New York City. Uh, with this in mind, we know that Paul wrote this letter while imprisoned in Rome. Uh, there was a Christian named Tychicus who's referred to there at the end of chapter 6, and Tychicus is likely the believer who made the hundreds miles long journey to and from Rome and Ephesus on Paul's behalf. And if you look up there on the map, you can see that's quite a long journey. Uh, we don't really know if he traveled by land or by sea, but in either case, it would have been a very, very long trek. Now, New Testament letters like this one in the Bible weren't just delivered to Christians in one location. They were circuit letters. Uh, they would have been copied, redistributed, and then shared with all the churches in the region. And that's because early Christians recognized these letters as being inspired by God. Ephesians isn't just a letter from Paul to the Ephesians. You see, Ephesians is the Word of God for the people of God. This six-chapter letter itself is broken up into two major parts, 
connected by a therefore in chapter 4, verse 1. Thus, chapters 1 through 3, therefore, chapters 4 through 6. In the first part of the letter, we're given a detailed depiction of God's identity and God's plan for salvation. Chapters 1 through 3 tended to be more doctrinal and theological in nature. The chapters explain to us who God is and how God sovereignly intervenes in the world. This first part is important because it forms the worldview and foundation on which the second part of the letter depends on. Then in chapters 4 through 6, we are given practical instructions for the church's identity and the church's mission. In light of who God is and what God is doing in the world, the second part of Ephesians instructs Christians in how to live out their new identity in Christ and how to emissionally advance God's redemptive work through Jesus. All in all, the letter to the Ephesians coalesces the foundation for the Christian life with a practical guide for the Christian life, all in just six short chapters. Now, what I'd like to do next is just kind of show you some of my favorite highlights from each chapter. Uh, when you've been preaching through a short letter for about half a year, it's just easy to forget what you've learned at the beginning. So here are some of the major moments in each chapter in Ephesians. And if you're taking notes, we'll go through these pretty quickly. In Ephesians chapter 1, we're introduced to what the whole letter is about right in verse 3. Verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Chapter 1 goes on to describe the Trinity and how God's blessings flow to us from his triune nature. Following verse 3, we get to see the predestining work in the person of God the Father. Then we get to see the redemptive work in the person of God the Son. And then we get to see the securing or sealing work in the person of God the Spirit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have blessed us to ultimately be a blessing to others, according to chapter 1. Then in Ephesians chapter 2, we come to this amazing declaration about the nature of salvation in verses 8 through 10. In chapter 2 there it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Chapter 2 sets the way of God's salvation apart from basically every other way of humanistic religion and philosophy. Here's what we learn. We learn that you cannot earn salvation by being generous and kind. You cannot merit salvation by doing more good deeds than your bad deeds. You cannot achieve salvation by obtaining some kind of enlightenment. In all these humanistic modes of salvation, humans can boast in their own ability, their own capacity, their own strength over others who may lack ability, 
lack capacity or lack strength. But Ephesians chapter 2 makes it clear that salvation is received from God, not achieved by us. So as the church, we do good works not to achieve salvation in Christ. Our good works are the evidence that we've truly already received salvation in Christ by grace through faith. Jesus is the one that we depend on to do the saving, not us. Then when we get to chapter 3, Paul resolves an important question in the mind of many Christians in the first century. Some wondered whether Hebrew covenant ancestry was required for salvation or not. If you're born a Jew or not born a Jew, can you be saved? Or in other words, if you weren't born into a Hebrew family, could you really be saved by Jesus? Well, Paul, a Jew himself, a Hebrew of Hebrews, and a well-trained Pharisee has this to say about Gentiles or non-Hebrew people in verse 6. He says this in verse 6, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. When it comes down to it, Ephesians 3 settles this question for us. It settles that your origin, your ancestry, your wealth, your status, aren't ultimately what separates you from the body of Christ. What matters is whether you receive in faith the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel or not. Paul, a Jew, can be saved by Jesus. Tychicus, a Gentile, can be saved by Jesus. And us as Kansans can be saved by Jesus. Even when we live in a world that tries to divide up peoples, Ephesians 3 reminds us that the love of God is deep enough and wide enough to unite believers of all tribes, tongues, and nations in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Chapters 1 through 3, therefore, chapters 4 through 6. Because of God's identity and salvation, we are therefore told in Ephesians 4, 22 through 24, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created in the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. In Greek, that phrase there, to put off and put on, is similarly used for taking off and putting on one's clothing. The visual picture presented in chapter 4 is that once you've been saved by Jesus, no matter who you are, once you've received the good news that Jesus is Lord and Savior, it's time to take off the dirty, filthy, ratty rags of the world that are filled with corrupt, deceitful desires and put on the better ways of Jesus that are righteous, holy, and true. But how exactly do we put on the new? Well, that's where chapter 5 comes in. Verses 1 to 2 in chapter 5 say, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love. 
as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The way that we put on the new is by imitating God and walking in love. Chapter 5 also goes on to specify the nature of this love. We're to walk as Christ loved us, which means we're to walk self-sacrificially, and we're to walk in a way that honors God who saved us. Christ's love is not portrayed as the pursuit of pleasure. That's not the kind of love that he portrays. Rather, Christ's love is portrayed as the pleasure of serving others. But the problem is that there are going to be forces that are going to try to corrupt our love. And this is what we're warned about in chapter 6. As such, verse 13 in chapter 6 says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. There are ideological forces, cultural forces, spiritual forces, human forces, and even forces in our own heart that will tempt us to put on our old selves again. They'll use tactics like doubt, deceit, and desire in an attempt to corrupt our new love for Christ. This is why we must put on the whole armor of God to withstand anything that would compete with our affections for the ways of Jesus. You see, love is actually a subject that runs all the way through Ephesians. And seeing as this is our last sermon in the series, I think it's fitting that we conclude on the subject of God's love. For instance, Ephesians 1.5 says, We are predestined in love. Ephesians 2.4 says, We are made alive in love. Ephesians 3.17 says, We are rooted and grounded in love. Ephesians 4.15 says, We speak the truth in love. Ephesians 5.2 says we are to walk in love. And then, the last verse in Ephesians, Ephesians 6.24 says, we are to love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. You cannot read the letter to Ephesians without encountering the amazing love between God and his people. You encounter love in every single chapter. So if you're taking anything away from the series, whether this is your first sermon you're coming to in the series, or you've been following us since the beginning in October, if you take anything away, let it be this. Let it be that love is the hallmark of Christian faith. Love is the hallmark of Christian faith. Even when we were broken by the worst of our sins, God loved us first so that we could love him. Now, in my family growing up, there were three movie franchises that my younger brother Christian and I were required to love. If we didn't grow up loving these movies, then I'm pretty sure that my dad and my, uh, his dad, my grandfather, they would have disowned us. 
Um, these movie series were, number one, Star Wars, number two, James Bond, and number three, Indiana Jones. Uh, what made these films great wasn't just the charisma of the heroes, but, you know, the obsessiveness of the villains. Now, Indiana Jones is particularly special because it's like the best parts of Star Wars meet the best parts of James Bond. Instead of taking on the Galactic Empire or the Soviets, though, the heroes take on Nazis in these archaeological quests. Now, my favorite movie in the Indiana Jones series is The Last Crusade. Do we have any Last Crusade fans here? Yeah, any, any uh, Temple of Doom fans? Oh, no, there's one in the back. All right, any classic Raiders of the Lost Ark fans? Okay, we got some people. Kingdom of the Crystal Skull doesn't count, so... Now, now uh, when Indiana Jones, as you guys know, he, you know, he's played by Harrison Ford. And what's cool about that is, is Harrison Ford is Han Solo. But The Last Crusade's amazing because his dad, Henry Jones, is played by Sean Connery, a.k.a. James Bond, which is just why it's the best team-up adventure. The two race against these Nazi soldiers led by the corrupt businessman Walter Donovan on a quest to find, of course, the Holy Grail. Now, Indiana Jones isn't too thrilled to go on this adventure with his dad. Throughout most of the movie, he actually kind of resents his dad, who was absent most of his childhood. He was absent because his dad spent all of his time researching and chasing down the Holy Grail. At one point in the movie, his dad, Henry Jones, says, the quest for the Holy Grail is not archaeology. It's a race against evil. If it is captured by the Nazis, the armies of darkness will march over the face of the earth. To which his son, Indiana Jones, replies, This is an obsession, Dad. I've never understood it, never, and neither did Mom. But the villain in the movie, Walter Donovan, is as equally obsessive for the Grail. Both Henry and Walter believe the Holy Grail is imbued with the power of God to grant immortality. Walter Donovan, he pursues the Holy Grail along with these Nazi soldiers to unlock the secret of eternal life for the Third Reich. Now, Henry and Walter both treasured the Holy Grail. Both are classic examples of two people who let their love for their treasure become an idol. And what do idols do? Well, as we see in the movie, idols corrupt our love. In the climax of the film, the heroes and villains find themselves in a, the room of a temple filled with hundreds of cups. And Walter, the villain, is given the golden cup of a king by Indiana Jones. Believing that this cup is the Holy Grail, the villain drinks from it, thinking he's found his treasure. And then suddenly, the villainous man begins to rapidly age with horrible special effects and perishes into a big pile of dust. You know, in the terrible demise of this bad guy, the immortal crusader who's in the room uh, guarding the cup says this, You have chosen poorly. The Crusader's line is reminiscent of Matthew 6.21, in which Jesus says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. For where the thing that you value most is, 
there your love, your time, your devotion will be also. What you treasure most in this world says a lot about your fate in the next world. If you have your Bibles or bulletins, look there at the last two verses in Ephesians. In Ephesians 6, 23 through 24, we arrive at Paul's final greeting to this church he loves so much. He says, peace be to the brothers, referring to the church as a whole, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Grace be to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. What an incredible benediction this is. God's Word doesn't just say here, grace be to those who love Jesus. God's Word intensifies the nature of this love. This love is undying. This love lasts until the end. This love never fades. This love is love incorruptible. Ephesians 6 has just instructed us to stand firm in the armor of God, but before we can put the armor on, we've got to have been given a changed heart. You cannot love Jesus without love incorruptible. Until you've received Jesus' own incorruptible love by grace through faith, you cannot put the armor on. All in all, the final call in Ephesians 6.24 is just like Paul's initial address in Ephesians 1.3 at the very beginning. You see, in Ephesians 1.3, we're to bless God. We're to bless the God who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And then at the end, in Ephesians 6.24, we're to love Jesus. We're to love Jesus who has loved us with incorruptible love. You see, the Christian life is all about reciprocating back to God what we have first received from God. When we receive God's blessings, we then bless God back. When we receive God's love, we then love God back. And when we see God's faithfulness and His promises to us, then we remain faithful to God no matter what. As Christians, we reciprocate back to God what we receive from God. But again, when it comes to love, there are forces that will try to corrupt our love. We may truly treasure Jesus in our hearts and minds, but there are spiritual forces at work that will try to turn our devotion towards Him instead to corruptive idols. Although there are many idols after our hearts, Ephesians alludes to three of them that we should watch out for in particular. And that first idol is the idol of power. And perhaps another way we can think of power is control. Again, power or control in and of itself is not a bad thing, just like the Holy Grail is not a bad thing. But the pursuit in obtaining power or control 
can become an idol that corrupts our love for Christ. We see power everywhere in Ephesians. At times, the letter speaks to the good power of God. Ephesians 1.19 wants us to know the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards us who believe. In Ephesians 3.7, Paul tells us he was made a minister of the gospel by the working of God's power. In Ephesians 3.16, Paul prays for us to be strengthened with power through God's Spirit. Yet at other times, the letter also speaks to the power of evil. That is to say, the kind of power that attempts to rebel or resist or repress God. Ephesians 1.21 refers to the power of nations when it says God is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Ephesians 2.1 reminds us that we are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. And Ephesians 6.12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We see all in Ephesians that God's power is very much on the church's side. However, there are still other powers at work aiming to impede the church. And if we're not careful, if we're not on guard, then the pursuit of power itself can corrupt our love for Christ. You know you struggle with power when you desperately want to be the person who affects change in the world. Someone tempted by a power idol may want to be an influencer may want to be a change maker, may want to be a mover and shaker. And perhaps for you, lacking the power to do these things in your sphere of influence makes your life feel less meaningful at times. And if you're a Christian, you may start to feel like you failed God or let God down, especially if you're not seeing the effects of your influence in the world making a difference for God. But that's why power is so dangerous. It's a dangerous idol. Power tempts us to believe that change happens because of us. But real power doesn't happen because of us. Real power happens because of God. From our tiny perspective on this side of heaven, there is perhaps no greater power than death. I mean, just imagine if death didn't exist. Imagine if someone really did find the Holy Grail and every human who has ever lived had the power to live forever and ever without the fear of death. What a power to keep people from dying. Well, the truth we discover in the Bible is that Jesus really does have this kind of power. Jesus is the Son of God and he has the power of God. Yet, in our own world, we can find ourselves tempted to fret concerning our power over things like finances, our power over people, our power over sickness, over adversity, over the world, when in fact, 
Jesus has already shared His power with us. Jesus' power is the true power which gives everlasting life over death. What Ephesians calls us to do is to depend on Jesus' power to overcome the world's power. When we depend on Jesus' power to help us face the day, our love for Jesus is protected. But when we look to ourselves for the power to effect change, it leaves us open. It leaves our love open to assault. It leaves us vulnerable to corruption. If we're to love Jesus with love incorruptible, it means that we've got to give Jesus power over our situations. And if you're someone who struggles with power as an idol, the best way to ask Jesus for his power is through prayer. All throughout Ephesians, we see Paul himself praying. And even at the end of Ephesians, we see Paul asking for prayer as an imprisoned ambassador in chains. So don't look for power in yourself. Look to Jesus in prayer for the power to transform the world for God's glory. Now, a second idol that we come to in Ephesians is comfort. Comfort is another great idol that Ephesians warns, of, warns us of. Ephesians 2.3 tells us we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Now, ancient Ephesus was a passionate comfort culture. It was a comfort culture a lot like America is today. There was widespread passion for rich comforts and sensuality. The city of Ephesus was known for worshiping the goddess Artemis, had a massive temple built there at one time. This was the Greek goddess of chastity, hunting, wild animals, forests, childbirth, and fertility. More simply, Artemis was the goddess of food and sex in Ephesus. The Roman world idolized food and sex. They were two comforts the ancient world enjoyed, and they are two comforts that our modern world enjoys too. Throughout the year, Ephesus would host festivals in the name of Artemis, in which people would gorge themselves by indulging their gluttony and their lust. You know you struggle with comfort when your passion for pleasure overwhelms your capacity for self-control. This comfort idol takes all kinds of forms. Sometimes we pursue comfort in things that numb our senses to escape pain. Other times, we pursue comfort in distracting entertainment to escape reality. Sometimes those of us more introverted pursue comfort in isolation to retreat from the stress in the world. And sometimes those of us more extroverted pursue comfort in groups to avoid dealing with personal stress. All in all, the idol of comfort is a predator. It's a predator that preys off of our desires. Just like power, though, comfort certainly isn't a bad thing in and of itself. But the way that we pursue it, or the way that we obsess over comfort in this life can become dangerous, especially when we search for comfort apart from Christ. You know, one of the reasons why comfort in so many of its forms is so alluring is because the Bible teaches us that in some ways we were designed for comfort. 
We were designed to rest. God didn't design human beings to be go, go, go every single day. God designed us to enjoy the fruits of our labor and to enjoy our time with Him. God made us to work, but God also made us to rest. But comfort is the kind of idol that tempts us to overindulge in our rest or to seek rest in the wrong kind of places. So here's a way to guard your love for Christ against an idol of comfort. Try resting in God's Word more before resting in your own desires. Try resting in God's Word more before resting in your own desires. Now, I really mean this. By resting in God's Word, it means that you've got to develop discipline. You've got to develop the self-control to open up God's Word. And this isn't something that we're wired to do naturally, so it takes work at first. You know, it's kind of like assembling a bed or installing a new mattress. Uh, Before you can rest in that bed, you've got to do the work of actually building the bed which you're going to rest in. And when it comes to God's Word, we've got to do the work of reading it, knowing it, reflecting on it, remembering it before we can rest in it and enjoy the comforting security found only in God's Word. But when you start regularly finding your comfort in the promises of God's Word, you'll find your passions for the activities in this world that numb you, distract you, or provide an escape for you, You'll find your desires for those comforts growing dimmer and dimmer, and you'll find your love for Jesus Christ and His Word growing stronger and stronger. Listen carefully to these lyrics from the song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. They say this, O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see? There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in His wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. His word shall not fail you, He promised. Believe Him and all will be well. Then go to a world that is dying, His perfect salvation to tell. These lyrics remind us that the way you know you're finding your comfort in Christ is that even though we're in a troubled world, you've got the courage to tell the world there's no better rest than resting in the salvation of Jesus Christ. Now, the last idol I want to look at in this message is the idol of approval. Power, comfort, and approval aren't the only things that can become idols that threaten our love for Christ, but they're the ones clearly mentioned in Ephesians. With respect to labor conditions in the ancient Roman world, Ephesians 6, 6 through 6-7 warns against eye service as people pleasers, but rather God's Word calls us to work doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with good will as to the Lord and not to man. You see, when we're working for the approval of people first, rather than working for the approval of God first, 
then we're going to stumble very quickly into idolatry and corrupted affections. You know you struggle with approval when you're worried about what people think of you, even when they're not around. The real danger of approval is that it constantly follows you. You find yourself consumed with what others think, and it follows you even when they're not there. People-pleasing is like some sort of anxiety rain cloud that just keeps raining on your parade. And it's a danger because not only does it keep you from being your true self, it keeps you from living in a way that puts your approval from Christ first. People-pleasing is like acid rain that just slowly dissolves your love for Jesus. The problem with seeking the approval from people first is that it's fleeting. One moment, people may like you. And then the next moment, people may turn on you. That's just the way the world is. Even so, it's tempting to try to live in that moment, that moment when you're surrounded by the affection of people. But eventually, the pressure to keep chasing that fleeting moment of adoration will crush the ones who make it an idol. So here's what can help you if approval ever feels like an idol in your life. Remember your approval in Christ is eternal while your approval on earth is temporary. Just like power and comfort, approval isn't necessarily a bad thing. Having power, comfort, and approval aren't inherently self-destructive. However, they become corrosive idols in our lives when we find ourselves obsessing over them. Yet it is ultimately Jesus who sets us free of these obsessions. Whereas prayer can protect your love from a power idol, and God's Word can protect your love from a comfort idol, thankfulness is what can protect you from an approval idol. You see, when you find yourself dwelling in gratitude, real gratitude for what God has already done for you through Jesus, you'll discover yourself caring very little about what problematic people think of you. You see, we can be thankful that there is good news. There's good news in the gospel of Jesus Christ that sets us free from people-pleasing. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 reminded us that God does not approve of us because of anything we've done, but that God eternally approves of us because of what Jesus has done on our behalf to save us by grace through faith. You know, trapped in the pit of our own self-destructive idolatry, it is the love of Jesus Christ that has made a way for those of us who believe in him, follow him, and seek his approval first. The love of Jesus has made a way for us to be saved. So we no longer need to go chasing other treasures for the kind of approval that fades. Rather, God has called us all to live a life of thankfulness that honors Jesus for the kind of approval that lasts forever. Now, early in our message, I mentioned how the villain in Indiana Jones chose the golden cup of a king, and then he perished into, you know, dust. Indiana Jones instead afterwards identifies an ordinary wooden cup, the cup of a carpenter. He drinks from the cup, and the immortal crusader says, 
you chose wisely. And discovering the true holy grail, Indiana Jones then rushes to heal his dad, Henry, who had just been shot by the Nazis and was beginning to bleed out. But as soon as his dad's wound then miraculously heals from drinking from the cup, the Nazis set off a trap and the entire temple, of course, starts to fall apart. Can't have an Indiana Jones movie without the temple falling over. But you see, the Holy Grail is knocked over the cliffside, and so is Indiana Jones. He slips and nearly falls into the abyss, but his dad grabs his hand and his dad shouts, Junior, give me your other hand. I can't hold on. But after witnessing the power of the grail, Indiana Jones can't help but keep reaching for it. And he says, I can get it. I can almost reach it, Dad. And then for the first time in the entire movie, uh, Henry Jones does something he's never done before. You see, for the whole movie, Henry refuses to call his son by his name and instead calls him just Junior. Indiana Jones, Indiana is what they called the dog. <laughs> but this time, Henry calls his son by his name, Indiana. Surprised, Indiana turns from the grail and looks up at his father, and his father says, Indiana, let it go. This is probably my favorite part in the movie because holding his son tightly, uh, Henry Jones realizes that his idolatrous obsession had been passed on to his son. His obsession became his son's obsession. Seeing this, Henry gives up on the legendary Holy Grail that he chased his whole life because his son matters more. Indiana, let it go. Like the end of the last crusade, Ephesians is a letter in which God the Father is calling us by name. Spiritually, we're dangling off the cliff over the abyss, and like Indiana Jones, we find ourselves tempted to reach into the darkness, grabbing and grasping for treasures turned to idols. But like Henry, God is calling out in greater wisdom, saying, let it go. Some of us are tempted by power. Some of us tempted by comfort. Some of us tempted by approval. And you know, some of us are even regularly tempted by all three. But you see, no matter what kind of idols attempt to corrupt our love for Jesus, we can always return to the incorruptible love from Jesus that we've already received. The Christian life is about reciprocating back to God what we first receive from God. And when God gives us his hand, like the tight grip of a father clasping onto his child's arm, Ephesians reminds us that we are to hold tightly in faith. And you can rest assured that when God calls your name, God is never going to let you go. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for the love you show us in Ephesians. God, thank you for filling Paul with your spirit to write these inspired words in prison many centuries ago. God, help us to love your son Jesus with love incorruptible. 
God, turn our affections from selfish power, selfish comforts, and selfish approval to do your will in the gospel. God, make us bold to proclaim our saving faith in Jesus for your glory. Lord, for any here who may feel like they are spiritually dangling off the edge, Lord, we pray that you would give them eyes to see your love and ears to hear your voice as you call their name. God, we pray that you would help them to put their faith in you and to let go of the things they're chasing in this world and to grasp you. God, save us from the darkness within our own hearts. And God, help us to stand firm against the darkness in the world. Help us to reflect the overwhelming love we've received from you to all those in need around us. So God, by your Spirit, let us walk in love. And all this we pray in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, and all God's people said, Amen. This podcast was produced by Journey Bible Church in Olathe, Kansas. If you're interested in learning more about our church, visit journeybible.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. We'd appreciate a positive rating and would encourage you to share this program with a friend. Thank you for listening.